thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. One of the top things that people fear and hate to deal with is confrontation. I'm sure there are many here in this room where you hear that word or you think of circumstances that deal with confrontation, and that's not something that's pleasant. We often don't like to have to confront someone who's in sin or hurting us because of their sin. And because we fear and we dislike and often are just annoyed and hate confrontation, we have a tendency to respond to people in sin with two extreme unbiblical approaches. One extreme response is that we just ignore the sin. We just ignore the harm that it's doing. We try to just avoid it and and hope that it goes away. And I know that I have tried that in my life many times, and I'm sure you have as well. And I'm sure you've discovered what I have discovered. It doesn't work. It doesn't help the person in sin stop sinning, and it doesn't protect the people who are getting hurt by this sin because we're just ignoring it. We're not addressing it. We're not doing anything about it. But, you know, because we don't like to deal with confrontation and, you know, we often uh, are really annoyed by it, we have another extreme response as well, and that is that we're way too harsh. Someone comes and they repent and we're unwilling to forgive them, we're unwilling to reconcile with them. You know, we have oftentimes a very harsh response to people who have sinned against us, and I have been guilty of that extreme as well. There's the extreme of ignoring sin, and then there's the other extreme of just being way too harsh on sinful people who have come and sought forgiveness, and I say, no, you know, what you did does not deserve forgiveness, or I'm not going to reconcile with you, I'm not going to um, get this relationship back to the way that it was. Now, as believers, and even as leaders within the church, these two extreme responses to people in sin are very prevalent in our lives. We often ignore the sin that is hurting the fellowship, or we're just way too harsh on those in sin, not willing to forgive them, not willing to reconcile with them. And, you know, when the church ignores sin, it's kind of like a bar. You know, people love to go to bars where they can, you know, drink alcohol and kind of just forget their sin and forget their troubles and they like to be surrounded by people who aren't going to say anything they kind of just can go there and it's a place where they can be comfortable in their sin and no no one's going to call them out on it and unfortunately sometimes that's the way the church is people just come and they're just comfortable in their sin and the church does nothing to address it but then there's the other side the church is sometimes like a prison where we're way too harsh on sinners and you 
go to prison and, you know, they're harsh. There's no, you know, forgiveness and reconciliation there. And, you know, I have been to churches with both extremes going to churches where, you know, anything goes and not from the pulpit, you know, sin's not addressed and people who are in blatant sin in the fellowship, no one deals with it. But I've been in other churches where everyone who's there, a sinful person comes in and they're just so harsh. And when someone repents, they're not willing to forgive and restore. But, you know, as a church, we shouldn't be like a bar that's ignoring sin, and we shouldn't be uh, like a prison that's harsh on sin. We should be like a hospital where we want to address the sin, but the goal is to help the person get better, help the person overcome the sin that's in their life. You see, in the prison, they, uh, they, they make you feel worse about your sin. In the bar, they make you feel better. But that shouldn't be the goal of the church. It's not feeling better or worse. It's getting better. Our goal should be we want to help people get better, overcome their sin, and be there for them in that. Now, the reason I've started with sharing these two different extremes is because the Corinthian church that we've been looking at as we went through 1 Corinthians and now in 2 Corinthians, they struggled with both of these extremes. If you remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see the first extreme that they had of ignoring a big, blatant sin that was in their fellowship. Let me remind you of what was happening. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, it says, It is actually reported... That there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So if you remember there in Corinth, there's a man who is sleeping with his mother-in-law and they weren't doing anything about it. They weren't addressing that sin. It was a clear, blatant sin. And Paul says, not even among the Gentiles do they do this. And this is happening within the church here in Corinth. And notice what Paul says about him. He says, you're puffed up thinking, oh, look at how loving we are that we allow this person in this blatant sin just to continue in it in our fellowship and we don't do anything about it. And Paul rebukes them and says, you need to discipline this man who is in this horrible, unrepentant sin. And he tells them, now this is what you need to do in verse 5. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, remove this man who is an unrepentant, blatant sin from the protection of the church fellowship that ultimately he can be out there in the world and Satan can come do his thing against this guy for the purpose of he needs to get up to a place where he recognizes the severity of his sin and hopefully will come to a place of repentance. Well, between 1 Corinthians and the writing of 2 Corinthians, the Corinthians receive this challenge from Paul and they respond. They deal with this guy's sin, which they were ignoring, and they remove him from their fellowship And this man, as he's out in the world and he's dealing with the consequences of his sin, he comes to a place of repentance. Now, you would hope that this man would then be forgiven by the church, be welcomed back by the church, because the goal of discipline was to cause repentance. But unfortunately, the Corinthians went from one extreme to another extreme. They went from the extreme of ignoring this man's sin to being super harsh to his repentance, not willing to forgive him and not willing to reconcile with him and bring him back into 
the church. And so chapter 2 here, Paul is going to deal with how they should respond. They're responding poorly in the way that they're harshly dealing with this man. And so he wants to say, this is the biblical response that you should have when someone repents of their sin. And so as we look at this, it's a good challenge for us. How do we biblically respond to someone who has come in repentance for a sin that they have committed against us? And we're going to see some good practical challenges for how we can do this. So let's pick up where we left off last week in verse 3, and it says this. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. 1 Corinthians was a letter of rebuke. As we noted, Paul deals with 11 problems that the Corinthians had, and and he's sharing with them, here, this is wrong, and this is the solution to the problem. And as we looked at last week, a lot of the people in Corinth didn't like to get rebuked. You know, they didn't appreciate being rebuked, and they would kind of just say, you know, who are you, Paul? Who's giving you the authority to say these things about us and to challenge us in these areas of sin in our life? And, you know, I find that interesting because that is so often the response that we have or that others have when, when we seek to point out a sin, you know, we right away, it's like, well, well, who gave you the authority or who do you think you are? Or look at your own sin. And we, we are so quick to try to discredit the person who is revealing our sin instead of listening and saying, hey, are they sharing something that's real and true in my life that I need to deal with? And so these people who often think that pastors or other believers shouldn't rebuke sin, deal with sin, you know, they just think, you know what, that makes people feel uncomfortable. And unfortunately, we have a church culture today, especially here in America, where many churches are just ignoring the topic of sin, ignoring challenging sin, ignoring rebuking sin, because we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable, and so we're not going to talk about it, we're not going to address it. But I think something important for us to understand is if you're in sin or I'm in sin, we should feel uncomfortable. God doesn't want us comfortable in our sin. When you're comfortable in your sin, then you don't repent of it. Then you don't seek to get out of it. You're just comfortable and happy just continuing on in that sinful lifestyle. And so God wants us in a place where we're not comfortable, where we seek to deal with it, where we seek to change from it. And this was one of the problems with the Corinthians not addressing this man's blatant sexual sin in their church because they allowed him just to continue comfortably in it which caused him to have no reason to repent, no reason to get right with them and God. And so when they finally disciplined him and removed that comfortable uh, aspect of his life, then he got to a place where he came to repentance. So a faithful believer like Paul is not going to ignore sin. They're going to address it. They're going to rebuke it. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And we love that. Oh, we should always be ready to preach the word. But notice some of the things that he encourages him to do as he preaches the word. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. 
You see, part of being faithful to preach the word is to rebuke sinful things the Bible says are wrong. The Greek word translated rebuke means to chide, reprove, warn, rebuke, or charge sharply. If you read through scripture, you see that it's full of warnings, it's full of charges, it's full of sharp rebukes of this certain lifestyle or behavior is wrong. You read the Old Testament prophets. The most common message that God gave to the Old Testament prophets for Israel was a rebuke. Get right. Stop living in sin. Turn and repent. As Jesus says, one of the greatest prophets of all, John the Baptist, who led the way for Jesus to come, his main message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when the Pharisees and other sinners would come, he called them out on their sin and told them they need to get right. This is at the core of the gospel. Before you can share the good news of what Jesus has done, you've got to start with the bad news of, you're a sinner And there's judgment from God coming upon your sin. Oh, well, that will make people feel uncomfortable. Good, because we want them to come to Christ. We want them to recognize, I need a Savior. Well, I don't know I need a Savior if I don't understand I'm a sinner who's going to be judged. And so unfortunately, many in the church world today are abandoning this very important part of proclaiming the word. we got to deal with sin. Paul was faithful to preach God's word. He was faithful to rebuke sin when he saw it. But notice what Paul says in verse 4, because I think this is so important as we think of this topic. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul In rebuking the Corinthians in the first letter, this was not something that he enjoyed. He actually says, I did it with much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears. This was difficult for him. This wasn't something that was pleasurable to him. He was obedient to do it. He did it because he knew he should. And I think that's a reality. I don't know anyone who's like, I'm so excited to go address a sin in someone else's life. I can't wait to go point that out because it always ends well. We know that oftentimes it doesn't end well. We know that oftentimes there's conflict. And so we don't look forward to that. And it's anguishing. And sometimes it even brings us to tears as Paul did. But yet he was still faithful to do it. But notice what else he says. He wants them to know that he wasn't opposed to them. That's not why he did it. Or he wasn't because he wanted to grieve them, but because he loved them. Now, I think this is very interesting. Paul is saying, hey, I rebuked you because I love you. But in the culture that we live in today, we've kind of redefined love, and people today would never associate love and rebuke. If you were to rebuke someone for the way in which they live, then our culture says, well, surely you must hate me, not love me, because we have now a mistaken notion of love. We believe if you love someone, you're never going to offend them, you're never going to hurt their feelings, that you would never share something that challenges the way that they think or the way that they live their life. Our culture thinks if you love someone, then you need to let them live their life however they want. And if you disagree with their lifestyle and call them a sinner or that particular thing a sin, then there's no way that you could love them. But that's not biblical love. That's a twisted cultural perspective of love that has nothing to do with what we see in the Bible because God loves everyone, but he surely doesn't agree with our sin. And he doesn't accept our sin. And we see that by the fact that he judges our sin. 
We're told that God is love, not that he just loves, he is love. But notice what we're told he also does for those that he loves. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, it says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You know, we, we, we say it, God is our perfect, loving, heavenly Father. And it's true. But look at what our perfect, loving, heavenly Father does to his children whom he loves. He disciplines them. He wants us to recognize our sin and stop our sin because our sin destroys us and hurts us. And so he disciplines us to prevent and help us steer clear of those things. Now, for those of us who are parents, this should be something that that we understand. We discipline our kids because we love them. We want what's best for them. We want them to know what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And we use discipline to help teach them those things. But I can guarantee you, I know with myself and and now with my girls as I'm in the father role, when you discipline them, they often get offended. They often have their feelings hurt. They don't like that you're telling them the way in which they're doing something is wrong and they're not allowed to. And our culture would be like, well, that's so unloving. How dare you do that to them? But we realize that you can love and rebuke at the same time. And actually, as a parent, if you never rebuke your child and let them do whatever you want, I would say you don't love them. You don't love them very much because that is horrible for them. And true love says, you know what? I'm going to rebuke you for your good, just like God rebukes us for our good. And so rebuke and love, biblically, go together. But notice the motivation. Paul says, what motivated me to rebuke was because I love you. And that is so key because so often our rebukes are not motivated by love. It's motivated by hate or by anger because those are natural fleshly responses. When someone sins against us, we get upset with them. And so, oh, I want to give them a piece of my mind. I want to tell them what they need to hear. I want them to suffer. There's all these feelings that come. And so oftentimes we rebuke in sin. We rebuke out of hatred. We rebuke out of anger. And you know what? When you do that, you're in as much sin as the sin that you're rebuking. And so we just kind of have, they've sinned against us, and now we're sinning as we respond unbiblically to them. So the motive for um, dealing with people's sin needs to be one of love. And greatly, we see here, Paul. His rebuke for the Corinthians was motivated by love. And now Paul's going to share with them how they should respond to this man that they disciplined. And then he responded by repenting. So so now what should they do? And this is a great practical lesson for us, verses 5 through 8. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Paul starts off encouraging these believers, don't be too severe on the man who has now come to a place of repentance for his sin. 
He's received the punishment that was inflicted on him by the majority here in the church. And after receiving this punishment by being removed from the fellowship, he responded with repentance. And you guys aren't willing to forgive him. You guys aren't willing to receive him back into fellowship. And Paul is saying that's too severe, too harsh of a um, response to this man. He says, consider the punishment that you've given sufficient. He has suffered enough. He's dealt with it and the, the, the goal has been reached. He's repented. And so now you need to respond in a right way. You see, Paul wants the Corinthians and us to understand there's a proper balance in dealing with someone who has repented of their sin. The Corinthians, they struggled with that balance. They were either way too lenient in ignoring the sin or way too harsh in being unwilling to forgive. Uh, And so Paul is saying, you know what, you need a good balance. And I think in order to have a good balance, we first need to remember, why are we doing this? What's the reason for bringing discipline? What's the reason for bringing a rebuke? And the ultimate reason should be to bring the person to repentance and restoration. That should be the desire. I'm doing this out of love, and so what I want to see is that you repent and that we can reconcile, that our relationship can get back to the way in which it was. But you know, when we're not willing to do it in love, then oftentimes we respond with revenge and retaliation instead of repentance and restoration being the goal. And so we need to recognize that's the goal. We want repentance. We want reconciliation to transpire. The problem the Corinthians had with this man is that, you know, they weren't there. They didn't want to bring Uh, reconciliation and get right and have him restored. And so Paul says there's three things you need to do that's going to help you restore this man to the way in which you should do it, the biblical way to approach when someone has repented of their sin. The first thing Paul says in verse 7 is you ought rather to forgive him. So the first thing we should do in restoring a repentant believer is we need to forgive them. And this is one of the most important things in restoring someone into a relationship because if there's no forgiveness, then there's no restoration. You see, it takes two parties for restoration to happen. One party, who the one who committed the sin, they need to repent. But when they do that, the only way restoration is going to happen is if the other party who was sinned against is willing to forgive. And so, you know, we will, when you repent, when you repent, good. But so oftentimes people will repent But we're not yet willing to forgive. We're not willing to offer the forgiveness that the Bible says that we need to offer to them. And we're often too harsh. Well, you've repented, but I'm not forgiving you. You've repented, but there's no way we're having a relationship again. And, you know, we just kind of hold on to what they did. And we're not willing to deal with it the way that we're told to biblically. You know, Jesus tells us something important about forgiveness in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. He says, take heed to yourself. If a brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Jesus makes it pretty clear. If someone sins against you, you should rebuke him. So Jesus is saying rebuke is something that is biblical and right. But he also turns around and says, and if they repent of their sin, you need to forgive them. 
And then he goes on to say something that's a little difficult for us. And if they sin against you seven times in one day, but each time they come back and ask for forgiveness, then you need to forgive them for it. And this is a struggle for us because one of the reasons that we give for not forgiving someone is they've just done that thing too many times. I don't even believe that you're sorry anymore. This is the 50th time or the 100th time or whatever it is. And when it multiplies in the amount of times that they've done it, we get to a place where we're not willing to offer forgiveness. And Jesus says, no, if they're repentant, our response should always be forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. When someone sins against us, our fleshly response is not to be kind, it's to be mean. It's not to be tender-hearted, it's to be hard-hearted. It's not to be forgiving, it's to be unforgiving. And so when we're sinned against, we have to deal with our own flesh, which wants to respond in a sinful way. I want to be mean in response, I want to be hard-hearted to you, I want to be unforgiving to you, and you know, so we have that difficulty that's within us, and the Lord wants us to rise up over that and say, you know what? You have to approach this in the way that Jesus approaches us. Look at how Jesus forgives us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, the challenge that Paul gave was, you know what, if you, you, we need to forgive even as God in Christ forgave us. So the challenge is forgive like you have been forgiven by God. Well, aren't you glad Jesus was kind and tender-hearted and forgiving to you when you confessed your sin to him? The multiple sins, the, the, every sin in your life he was willing to forgive of you? Aren't you glad that he wasn't mean and hard-hearted and unforgiving and said, no, you've done this too many times, or no, you're too horrible, or whatever the reason to say, I am not going to forgive you. And this is the challenge. When we look at all that we've been forgiven, it should bring us to a place that no matter what people have done, that we can, with God's help, come to a place to forgive them for it. So the first thing we should do in restoring a repentant believer is to forgive them. The second thing in verse 7, Paul says, is comfort them. Now, this is the same Greek word that we looked at last week when we looked at God comforting us in our suffering and that he now gives us the ability to comfort others with the comfort that we have received. It means to console, exhort, strengthen, encourage, comfort. You know, when restoring someone who who has repented, we need to go beyond just forgiveness to actually offering comfort, to console, to exhort, to encourage Come alongside of them, encourage them, and help build that relationship back that has been hindered by their sin. You know, sometimes we're willing to forgive, but we're not willing to comfort. Oh, I'll forgive you, but there's a part in which we say, you don't deserve my comfort, and actually, I want you to suffer. I want you to have to suffer more for what you've done, and so I'm not going to comfort you. I'm not going to ease the suffering. I'll forgive you, but I want you to wallow in your misery a little longer because you hurt me. 
And that's our flesh. That's the, the desire that we often have. And we have to get over that to say, you know what? Not only should I be willing to offer forgiveness, but willing to bring comfort to a truly repentant heart. And remember, that is what God does for us. Because you know the reality is we can say, well, they don't deserve it. And it's true. They don't deserve our comfort. But we don't deserve the comfort of God. We don't deserve the forgiveness of God. He offers us what we do not deserve. And he commands us to follow in his example. And so it's not a matter of, do you deserve it? No, they don't. But we do it anyway because God calls us to do it. God wants us to respond with that. You know, I've seen this so clear with my girls. When they sin and I rebuke them and they repent and they you know, say they're sorry, they are in desperate need of comfort. They need me to hug them. They need that comfort, that reassurance. Our relationship's okay. You know, that's something very important for them in that reconciliation process that I don't just say, I forgive you, stay away from me. You know, they wouldn't even believe that I forgive them if I said that. And so, you know, that bringing comfort is something that is just another added important thing that we need to do. So it's not just forgiving, but it's also comforting them. And the third thing Paul tells us is to reassure them of your love. When someone has sinned against you, they come and they ask for your forgiveness Something that's always in the back of their mind is, do you still love me? That's just a reality that we have. We do something, especially the bigger the sin, the more that question comes. After I have done this to you, do you still love me? We do this with God. Especially when we've done the same sin over and over again, and we start to hear these voices, oftentimes that are the enemy, saying, God doesn't love you anymore. And we wonder, do you still love me after I have committed this sin? And this is why it's so important to reassure the person that, yes, I do still love you. But you know what? You can be reassured that God does as well. In Romans 5.8, we're told, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were a sinner, while you were an enemy of God, he loved you enough to give his life for you. Now that you have accepted him and are his child and still sin, you can be confident he still loves you. Even when you sin many times, the love of God is still there for you, and he reassures reassures you of that. Paul tells us in Romans 8 something wonderful about God's love. In verse 38 and 39, he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we repent of our sin, God is there to reassure us, I still love you. I still want a relationship with you. And now that you have repented, the barrier that is there is removed and we can have that complete relationship again that we had before you did that. And so there's that reassurance that he brings to us. But we need to be willing to bring that reassurance of our love to those who say, you know what, I am sorry, I repent. Repent. 
Well, you should be sorry after what you've done. And, and so often it's just like, I'm not willing to say, I still love you. Charles Hodge, a pastor and commentator, said, When the offender is made to feel that while his sin is punished, he himself is loved, and that the end aimed at is not his suffering but his good, he is more likely to be brought to repentance. This brings us back to what is our goal? If the goal is truly, I want to restore this relationship, I truly love you, and that person knows that, it brings them to a place where they actually want to be restored. They want to repent. Whereas if they just think, I'm just sharing this with you because I have something against you, I'm upset with you because of what you did to me, then that is not a helpful approach to bringing the ultimate goal of repentance and reconciliation. So when someone sins and they repent, there are three practical things that we need to do. First, forgive them. Second, comfort them. And third, reassure your love for them. Well, now Paul's going to give us two reasons why this is so important. Well, Paul, I don't need to do that. What's the big deal? I mean, if I approach it some other way, what's the problem? Well, Paul's going to say there's two big problems if you don't forgive, comfort, and reassure people of your love for them when they repent of their sin. The first reason he tells us in verse 7, lest perhaps such a one will be swallowed up with too much sorrow. When we withhold restoration, withhold forgiveness, comfort, and love, it can bring the person who is truly sorry and repentant of their sin to a place where they're swallowed up with too much sorrow, especially if their sin was quite significant and they're just so broken because of the devastation that their sin has brought to you and to them and to others, and they're repentant and they're sorry, and yet I am not going to forgive you, I am not going to restore, I am not going to comfort, I'm not going to show you love. We put them in a place where now, Paul says, they can be swallowed up with too much sorrow, and it can be very hurtful and damaging to them. You know, early on in my marriage, there were some times where Jenny would do something against me, and she would seek my forgiveness, and I was hard-hearted instead of tender-hearted, and I didn't want to show comfort or love, and, and oftentimes I would put off forgiving her because I wanted her basically to suffer for what she did, and it brought her to a place where I realized quickly she was sorrowful because she truly was repentant and she wanted my forgiveness and I wasn't willing to give it right away and I saw the devastation that it brought and I realized, you know what, my response by not willing to forgive and love and comfort is just as sinful as what she did to me. And it just you know, made it even worse. She's done something, she's repented and now in my response I've sinned against her and now we have a whole other thing that we have to deal with. But when we don't respond biblically to repentant sinners, we can really cause them to be in a very difficult, hurtful place. G. Campbell Morgan, a great pastor and commentator, said this, If discipline is largely lacking in the church today, so also is the grace of forgiving and comforting those who have done wrong are truly repentant. How often, alas, souls have been indeed swallowed up with over much sorrow because of the harshness and suspicion of Christian people toward them in view of some right which they have done. Love never slights holiness, but holiness never slays love. 
Love never slights holiness. It's not going to ignore sin. It's not going to ignore the fact that, you know, this person has not been holy in their life. But holiness never slays love. It doesn't keep us from loving the people who have sinned and seek repentance of their sin. So when it comes to restoring someone who has sinned, remember once again what Christ has done for you. When you sinned, he forgave you. He comforted you. He reassured you of his love for you. And that is what he desires us to do for others. Verse 9. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive, anything I also forgive. For indeed I have forgiven anything I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Paul wrote that strong rebuke in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he said, you know what, this is how you need to respond to this man. You need to remove him from your church. And here's a test. Are you going to listen to what I say? Are you going to do what you need to do to deal with this man's sin? And they passed the test. They actually were willing to address the sin. But now Paul says, all right, now I'm going to put you to the test again, saying, you know what, you did what I told you to do before, but you responded to another extreme where you were too harsh. So here's the test. Will you love him and forgive him and restore him back into relationship with you? And the real question for them is, are they going to find it easier to be tough on this guy or easier to be loving and forgiving? And I think we have to ask ourselves that same question because most of us have a tendency to lean one way or the other. You know, most of us, we're we're either just naturally, it comes natural. You see this in parents, usually you have one or the other. One's kind of the more tough disciplinarian, and then you got the other who's more the loving, forgiving one, and kids find that out really quick. And so if they want someone, they don't go to the tough disciplinarian who always says no, they go to the one that they can get stuff from, uh, my sister had my dad wrapped around her little finger and so we always knew if we need something julie you go tell dad and we're going to get it but you know i think if you're naturally the tough person who has no problem saying no but you're often more harsh in your dealing especially with people of sin you need to pray that god would help you have the balance of being able to show love and forgiveness as well And if you're the person who's just very loving and forgiving, but you're not willing to actually address sin and be tough with it and approach someone, you need to ask the Lord, hey, I'm glad I have this side, but you need to help me to not ignore sin, but be willing to stand up and talk about it and deal with it the way that the Bible tells me to. Paul says, I have forgiven this man. The challenge is I want you to forgive him as well. And here's the second reason why it's so important. If you don't follow these three biblical steps of forgiveness, comfort, and love, here's another issue that can happen. He says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. One of the reasons we should restore people biblically in this way is because when we don't, it opens up a door for Satan to do his dirty work in the lives of us and the lives of the people who have sinned against us. And Paul's saying we're not ignorant of his devices. Recognize if we do not approach this right, 
Satan is going to use this to do what he does, to bring destruction and hurt and devastation. And so we have to be aware, if we don't respond biblically to this repentant sinner, you're opening up the door for Satan to come and hurt us and to hurt him. And so we got to be very careful of that. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word here translated take advantage, which he says Satan will do, it has the idea of cheating someone out of something that belongs to him. And I think this is interesting because one of Satan's strategies is to cheat us out of things that belong to us in Christ. You know, in Christ, this man had, you know, he should have been restored. He should have been forgiven. He should have been comforted. He should have been loved. That was something that belonged to him as he was part of that church fellowship. And that wasn't given to him. And that's something that Satan loves. I want to keep people from receiving what they have in Christ, not to be given these things. And if we don't respond biblically to those who are repenting, we open up the door for Satan to take advantage of us. John Calvin said, There is nothing more dangerous than to give Satan a chance of reducing a sinner to despair. Whenever we fail to comfort those who are moved to sincere confession of their sin, we play into Satan's hands. I think that's something we need to recognize. When we fail to respond biblically, we're ultimately playing into the hands of Satan. And you know what? He's got enough ammunition to hurt us. We don't need to be a part of it. We don't need to help him. And we need to be aware, like Paul said, of the schemes. And I think that's the problem. Too often we're ignorant of how he works, and we don't actually realize that, you know, as a pastor, something I've seen so much is that unwilling believers are used by Satan to hurt other believers. They don't recognize it. That's not their heart in it. But the way in which they respond unbiblically, things that they're doing, the fact that they're not willing to love or forgive or comfort, that's just enabling Satan to use them to hurt other believers. And so we have to recognize that reality and that he's always looking for opportunity to come and to hurt and to destroy. And if he can use you, he will. And we don't need to help him in that process. Well, back in chapter 1, Paul shared a bit about why he didn't come to Corinth, why he didn't arrive when he said he was hoping to, and he's going to share a little more of a reason for that. Notice what he says in verses 12 and 13. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Here, once again, we see Paul was led by the open doors that God placed before him. He had desires. I I would like to go to Corinth. I would like to go here. I would like to go there. But I'm not going to kick down doors to get there. If God opens a door for somewhere else, then I know that's where I'm supposed to be. And so he was led by the doors that God opened. So Paul's basically saying, I'm not fickle. I'm faithful. The reason I didn't come was not because I said I would, but then I decided not to. I didn't come because I said I would, but God didn't have that as the timing. He opened another door for me to go to another place, and therefore I didn't come to Corinth. But I didn't find rest in my spirit because 
Titus was in Troas. You see, Titus was in Corinth, and Paul was wanting to hear a message from Titus about how the Corinthians were doing, but Titus didn't show up, and he didn't find out until he got to Macedonia. But now he goes on to share a little more in verses 14 through 17. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one were the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as for sincerity, but as for God or from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ." So Paul has been dealing with this criticism of why didn't you come here? Why didn't you come when you said you would come? And he's been explaining himself and giving reasons for why he didn't come. But more than anything, he wants the Corinthian Christians to know, Jesus is my general. I follow him. He's the one who leads me. And it wasn't for his timing for me to come to you at that time. And that's why I didn't do that. And in order to help them understand this, he takes an image from a Roman triumphant parade. You know, when a Roman general was triumphant in battle, he would receive this victory parade that he would start in the streets of Rome and it would end in the Roman capital. And first there would be the spoils of the the people that, you know, they've destroyed and they'd bring them out and everyone would see all the things that they got. And then next would be the people bound, walking through the streets, recognizing soon their death was going to happen. And then following that was the army and then finally the general. And there was this big parade to cheer them on. And during this parade, they burnt a lot of incense. It was mainly burning incense to their gods, who they gave credit to giving them victory. And so as this incense is burning, there's this smell that goes out. And the smell is received by two different groups of people. There's the victorious army and the general, and they smell this incense, and it's a smell of victory, and it's a smell of, you know, something that's great. But yet, those chained people, as they're walking towards their death, that smell is something very different. It's a smell of their death that is soon approaching. And so this is the image that Paul is painting when he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Paul is saying that Jesus is our triumphant general who always leads us in triumph. And as we follow his leading, he diffuses this fragrance that we get to smell, the fragrance of his knowledge. But notice what he says in 15 and 16. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we're a fragrance to two groups, those who are being saved, who have accepted Christ, those who are perishing, who have rejected Christ, to the one were the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. So as believers, we're the fragrance of God to those around us. To those who have accepted Christ, we are the fragrance of life leading to life. But to those who have rejected Christ, we are the fragrance of death leading to death. You know, the Bible reveals to us some bad news of what 
causes death. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reality is, each one of us are sinners. We have all fallen short of God's perfect standard. And there is a consequence to our sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The consequence of our sin is death, both physically and spiritually. Spiritual death, as we know, the Bible speaks of eternal separation from God in hell. So the bad news is our sin has a consequence. The consequence is spiritual and physical death. But the Bible also reveals good news. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And whoever believes Jesus, we're told they will not perish in hell, but have everlasting life in heaven. So for those who have accepted Jesus, as Paul says, it's the fragrance of life leading to life because Jesus is the only one who gives eternal life. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so believing in Jesus is what brings life eternally, but rejecting Jesus, a rejection of who he is, God, a rejection of what he's done, died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead. Those who have not accepted him, Paul says, he is the fragrance of death leading to death, because the only way to escape the consequence of our sin, which is death, is to accept what Jesus has done on the cross to save us from that death and that punishment and that consequence that we deserve. Adam Clark says this, The same happens in the present day to those who receive and to those who reject the gospel. It is the mean of salvation to the former. It is the means of destruction to the latter. For they are not only not saved because they do not believe the gospel, but they are condemned because they reject it. Jesus wants us to repent of our sin and ask for his forgiveness. And when we do, he restores us, he forgives us, he comforts us, he reassures us of his love. And he says, this is what I want you to do when people sin against you. Be willing to forgive them. Be willing to comfort them. Be willing to reassure them of your love. And if you don't, there are two negative consequences. The person can get swallowed up with too much sorrow, and you can open up the door for Satan to take advantage of everyone involved. Today we're going to go out after the service for those who are able and uh, just preach the gospel, share with people in the park. Uh, And I just want to close, just taking a little bit of time just to pray, ask God to move in that time, uh, ask God to prepare us, ask God to uh, just speak through us as we um, just go out and do that. And so if that's something that you would like to pray about, I'm just going to leave it open for a little bit, and then I'll close us in prayer. Uh, And I also just say, if you you want to pray, we got two teams here. We're going to be continuing doing work on people's houses, and that God would just use that uh, for us to just show his love, for us to get into good conversations, for believers that we would encourage them, for unbelievers that we'd be able to reach them with the gospel. Let's just ask the Lord today as we go to the park to bless that and throughout this week to use those who are helping and serving 
in our community, uh, that we would just be a blessing and a light. So let's just take some time just to ask the Lord to minister in that.